Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have uh, the pleasure to have uh, Rick Hassan back uh, on the podcast with his newest book. Uh, he's uh, spoken before and is back now with his uh, book, the title of which is The Justice of Contradictions, Antonin Scalia and the Politics of Disruption. The uh, book is published by Yale University Press. Rick, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me back on. Absolutely. As uh, people change and where they are and what they're doing, maybe you can just remind us and give us a little update on where you are. So I'm a professor of law uh, with a courtesy appointment in political science at the University of California, Irvine. I'm at the School of Law and uh, I teach election law and uh, other courses that are somewhat related to the field of elections, as well as some other topics like uh, torts and remedies. And uh, this is really a, my first book that's outside the election law realm and looks more generally at a very interesting and provocative Supreme Court justice. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the book is really interesting. I imagine very interesting for those that study the law specifically, but uh, the political dimensions of this are also interesting and, and ones we will get to. Um, for those that, that don't know, uh, Justice Scalia's background well. Before we get to his jurisprudence, maybe we can just start uh, talking a little bit about a little bit about him as a person, and, and more importantly, about him as a, a lawyer rising through government. So, who who was Antonin Scalia before he became a member of the Supreme Court? Um, I'm happy to answer that question, but I should point out just so that. Uh uh, anyone who might pick up the book wouldn't uh, be misled. My book is not a biography of Justice Scalia, and so I don't really delve much into his history. Um, if you want to read an excellent biography of Justice Scalia, I recommend Joan Biskupic's book, American Original. Uh, excellent uh, look at kind of what made him tick behind the scenes. Um, uh, what I try to do is give more of a, of an intellectual history of his ideas, a biography of his ideas, his, his ways of interpreting the constitution and statutes. Um, so the book's focused on that, but it does give it a little background. And, and, uh, I, I can tell you that, uh, uh, Justice Scalia was a law professor. He taught at the university of Chicago before, uh, uh, he ends up going, uh, to uh, first the Court of Appeals, uh, uh, the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and, and the Supreme Court. He worked in the Reagan administration. Um, and so he had a career both in academia and in government before he uh, entered into the judiciary. So he's appointed to the court and brings some uh, particular uh, views and way, ways to do the job. Um, the, the first that you discuss in the book is textualism. Um, what you refer to as times is the, in some ways the word game approach to the law. Uh, I wonder if you can um, maybe talk about uh, just what textualism is and how it uh, plays out in Scalia's approach to some key cases. Sure. And so uh, just to kind of talk about where the court was before Justice Scalia came on, uh, the Supreme Court 
handles cases that come up from state courts and federal courts. Uh, some of those cases raise issues of interpreting the United States Constitution. You know, what does equal protection mean? Uh, but a large number of the cases don't involve constitutional issues, but they instead involve issues of the meaning of federal statutes. Sometimes even the court has to interpret what a state statute means. And the question is, how do you read a statute? How do you know what a statute means and applied in a different situation? This comes up uh, in all kinds of contexts, criminal and civil contexts. A lot of cases where this comes up involve interpretations of a federal statute passed by Congress by an, an administrative agency like the Environmental Protection Agency, and they've got their own interpretation. And before Scalia came on the court, the approach to uh, how to understand what a statute means was was somewhat haphazard and eclectic. Courts would look at all kinds of things. It would not be uh, unheard of for uh, the court to go on for pages without actually even quoting the statute. Uh, and Justice Scalia really tried to discipline the court in terms of how it looks at a statute by focusing on the words of the statute and what he called the ordinary meaning of those words, how a, uh, an English speaker would understand the words at the time that they were written. And so he focuses on the meaning of language. Um, and uh, he focused on the meaning of language so much so that sometimes his opinions look more like uh, a grammar lesson than they do the kind of thing a court uh, might do. And so uh, it's fairly common today in cases involving the meaning of statutes and uh, the use of focusing on the text for the justices to uh, have a kind of uh, uh, dueling dictionaries section of their opinion, where uh, one justice will cite one dictionary and that dictionary's definition of a particular word, and, and, and the dissenting justice might cite a different one. The court also relies on uh, different rules of construction known as canons of construction. Uh, you know, what does it mean if you use a semicolon rather than a comma? Uh, what does it mean when you have a series of um, specifics followed by a general word? And they're all different kinds of rules that get applied here. And I would say that in the less controversial of the Supreme Court's cases, Justice Scalia's approach has been uh, very influential. Uh, all the justices, whether they agree with uh, Scalia or not overall, tend to now focus much more on the words of the statute uh, than they used to. They're much more disciplined. The big divide uh, between textualists and non-textualists is whether you can look at legislative history. And I think this is probably something your listeners would be very interested in. Uh, so when Congress uh, is considering passage of a bill, there will be hearings, there will be floor statements, there will be uh, a presidential signing statement. There'll be all kinds of material submitted into the record. How valuable is that material in understanding what a statute means? So for example, there may be some words in a statute and someone might have submitted a letter uh, as to how that those words should be interpreted, or there may be a committee report that says something. Scalia believed that these um, legislative history materials should not and could not be consulted except in very rare circumstances, that they were unreliable, that they weren't the law, that it would be violating the judicial oath to consider them because this is not the law passed by Congress. And, and his argument was that this would rein in judges and give them less discretion. Now, I'm very critical of this view in the book, and, and I agree with uh, Judge Robert Katzman, who's the chief judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, that um, 
not looking at legislative history could actually make things worse in terms of discretion, in terms of getting it wrong. Um, uh, that sometimes this looks more like a parlor game when all the judges are doing is uh, trying to look at uh, gr- grammar lessons rather than uh, real world problems that Congress was trying to solve. And, and, and sometimes it's very good evidence in the legislative history. Often it's not good evidence, but when it's there, it seems like you shouldn't put on blinders and stop yourself from looking at it. This issue has uh, played out in the recent debate in the in the court on uh, the the uh, healthcare law. I wonder if you could talk about about how that uh, most recent of uh, decisions uh, played out with uh, grammar and analysis of text. Sure. So uh, this was the second of two cases involving the uh, Obamacare health law that the Supreme Court considered. This case was called King versus Burwell. It involved a technical question, but it had very large real world implications. Um, to understand the question, you need to know a little bit about the healthcare law. Uh, so it said that people uh, who uh, did not have private insurance or insur- insurance through their employers could go and buy healthcare on uh, what's called an insurance exchange. And the law provided that states could set up their own exchanges if they wanted. Some states, all Republican states, didn't set up these exchanges. And people who lived in those states, they bought insurance on what's called the, the federal exchange. And um, they would get their subsidies. And the argument in the case was that subsidies were available only to people who bought insurance on a state exchange, meaning anyone who bought insurance on a, uh, an, uh, an exchange that was uh, a federal government exchange uh, would, would lose their subsidies. Uh, the uh, healthcare experts said this would cause a death spiral. The, the insurance markets would collapse if these subsidies disappeared. Um, And uh, Justice Scalia, in dissent, argued that the words of the statutes, very long statutes, 2,000 pages, but there was one phrase that people could get subsidies on an exchange, quote, established by the state, that those people um, uh, who are not, who are on a federal exchange were not eligible and uh, consequences be damned. Uh, If that meant the collapse of the exchange, that's not the court's problem. That's something for the uh, Congress to solve. Now he was no. he was in the dissent there. Uh, the majority, uh, in an opinion by uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who's who's not one of the court's liberals, uh, joined by Justice Kennedy as well as the court's liberals, uh, they engaged in um, they also engaged in a textual analysis and said, reading the words in context, it was clear that established by the state would include these fed, the federal exchange as well. Uh, but they also looked at what the consequences would be, and they said it would be quite odd for Congress to have passed this 2,000-page law intending for it to have a secret provision in it that would cause it to go down a death spiral. Uh, and this is what I mean when I say that um, uh, textualism is kind of like a parlor game where you're uh, looking at the words in isolation and not taking into account the real-world consequences. Uh, and I contrast what Scalia did in that case with another case, and we probably don't have time to get into the details of that, but it was a case involving interpreting the federal rules of evidence. And, and in that case, uh, Justice Scalia said, well, if, if the meaning of a statute is absurd, then we can just uh, rewrite the statute. And uh, that uh, even Scalia was not a consistent textualist. And when he would deviate from textualism, uh, and when he would decide to comply with textualism, it almost always, not always, but almost always 
was uh, leading him to results that were in line with a kind of conservative ideology. And, and I point out that Scalia and Justice Alito, both very conservative justices, Scalia used textualism and originalism, which uh, was the constitutional side of this interpretation uh, 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 method. And Alito, who doesn't use those, they vote together in the tough cases almost all the time. And so even though Justice Scalia said he was adopting neutral principles, it seemed that most of the time his principles would lead him to a, a conservative political decision in these cases. Yeah, and you mentioned originalism, which is at least one of the other methods that Scalia and, and others use. Um, would, would you talk a little bit about how originalism differs from textualism? Because from a distance, they might seem to be a similar method, but they really are different. And, and whether the, the, this is a choice for Scalia between the two and whether well, you sort of your, your thesis that this sometimes fits his ideology, is it, is it when the textualism argument aligns with his ideology and when the originalism does the opposite? So, so maybe just talk a little bit about originalism and, and how it fits into Scalia's uh, approach. Sure. So while textualism is the approach that applies to understanding the meaning of statutes in Scalia's world, Originalism, or what we might call um, uh, original meaning or original public meaning originalism, is how Scalia approached the interpretation of um, uh, constitutional provisions. What does it mean in, a, in the context to talk about cruel and unusual punishment or equal protection of the laws? Now, there are different versions of originalism. Uh, there are some versions of originalism which Scalia uh, disagreed with that, for example, looked at the original intent of the framers. Well, what would the framers have thought about this question, the people who, who actually drafted the Constitution? Uh, there was one moment in a, uh, an oral argument in a case involving a First Amendment challenge to California's ban on the sale of violent video games to minors, where Justice Alito at oral argument says, uh, I think what Justice Scalia wants to know is, um, what did James Madison think about video games? Did he enjoy them? Uh, which got a big laugh uh, from the right. crowd. And Scalia said, no, you know, that's not what I think. Scalia said, I'm not an original meaning kind of, uh, I'm not an original intent person. I'm an original public meaning originalist. And what he meant by that was, what uh, did the words mean at the time that the Constitution was, uh, or, or the Constitutional Amendment was adopted? Now, on the surface, this sounds just like textualism. You're asking what the meaning of the words were at the time. Um, but when it came to constitutional interpretation, Scalia would sometimes look not only at the question of um, what the words meant at the time, but how what was the social practice at the time. So to give one uh, very uh, stark example, the Equal Protection Clause passed and uh, ratified in the 1860s after the Civil War provides, uh, uh, this is part of the 14th Amendment, that a person cannot be deprived by the state of equal protection of the laws. Uh, now, look at, at those words by themselves. Does this provision um, ban discrimination on the basis of gender? And Scalia said no, uh, because no one at the time that the 14th Amendment was ratified would have thought that it would have given uh, these rights of, say, women to raise claims of sex discrimination. That's an interpretation of the um, 
constitution by looking not just at what the word said and what the word equal might have meant to someone at the time that the constitution was ratified, but also at the social context. Now, social context is really hard to figure out even today, but to go back in time over 100 years and figure out what that meant 150 years, I think is kind of almost impossible. But here too, Scalia was not always consistent. So for example, when it comes to the question of uh, affirmative action, uh, giving uh, uh, re- preferences on the basis of race to make up for past racial discriminations. Because said, you can't do it. Just look at the words of the statute. Equal means equal. And let's, you know, and, and, and we can read the words and we know what they mean. Well, it turns out that uh, at the time that the 14th Amendment was ratified, Congress passed what we would consider to be um, laws that gave preferences to newly freed slaves, a kind of form of affirmative action. And so uh, sometimes Scalia would look at the text of the statute, as the text of the constitutional provision alone, and sometimes he would look at social context. Uh, in both of those examples, uh, uh, it led him to uh, conservative results. And so I really do question how much of the um, uh, I, uh, uh, ideology that animated what Scalia and what all of the justices did was more important to him than uh, the methods he said that he used to interpret uh, statutes or constitutional provisions. You want to know how the court's going to decide a case? Uh, It's much easier to decide that by knowing whether the president that appointed the justice was a Democrat or Republican than whether or not someone's going to make an originalist or textualist argument. Now, you're not the only one to question some of these contradictions or inconsistencies. You, you relate a couple of um, uh, cases where uh, uh, Scalia was questioned, uh, one by Alan Dershowitz and then by Judge Posner. I wonder if you could recount these, these interactions he had, some of them quite public, and how Scalia responded uh, when he was uh, called to question on, on not being as, con- as consistent as he might think he was being. Yeah, so it would be it would be fairly common that uh, uh, when Scalia would give a public uh, lecture or, or or speech, that he would take questions and be fairly common to get a question that would say say you know you're not being consistent in your originalism or how how do you justify this? And uh, most of the time, his response was to laugh it off. Um, and so you mentioned an example of uh, Alan Dershowitz. Dershowitz, a, a professor at Harvard Law School, asked him about originalism in a criminal case. And, and he said, uh, uh, as Sarah Palin might say, I'll have to get back to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. There were other instances in which um, uh, one instance I recount in the book involves um, uh, Jeffrey Rosen, uh, who's a, a law professor and a writer for The Atlantic, who was with Scalia at a dinner party and called him out on uh, the question of uh, whether Brown versus Board of Education, uh, uh, you know, saying that separate but equal schools is, is inherently uh, unconstitutional, whether that uh, could be justified on originalist grounds and and, and, and uh, trying to point out some of the, the history of what we know at the time. And uh, Scalia's laughed it off and said, well, no theory is perfect. Um, he was asked to review a book by the uh, uh, Yale uh, law professor, Jack Balk, and he was asked by the University of Chicago Law Review to review the book. It was a book that was critical of Scalia's views of originalism and presented 
a different view of originalism. And Scalia said, I can't review the book because I'm not going to read the book. Uh, he said, I followed Disraeli's maxim, uh, never complain, never explain. Uh, Scalia did some complaining, but he rarely did explaining. He rarely responded to his critics. Uh, and he often bristled at the criticism, even though uh, he could be quite uh, sharp and nasty when he was disagreeing with either other justices on the Supreme Court uh, or uh, you know others making arguments uh, in, in the public realm. Uh, he was uh, sometimes quite vicious in his attacks, uh, but he was able to dish it out more than he was able to take it uh, in, uh, uh, in a lot of these public settings. Now, he occasionally laughs this off, but, but the, the influence of Scalia uh, is, is hard to underestimate. And some, some of that is with through organizations like the Federalist Society, which you talk about in the book. Uh, I wonder if you talk a little bit about the, the influence uh, uh, that Scalia has had through the Federalist Society um, in advancing this, this sometimes inconsistent and contradictory uh, view of how to rule on cases. And so um, this is part of the legacy as well. So maybe you can talk about um, how widely accepted Scalia's approach has been. As I mentioned, there are other justices on the Supreme Court who are quite conservative, Justice Alito, to some extent, Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, they're quite conservative, but they don't buy into his uh, originalist and textualist modes of interpretation. But I think that uh, just like we've seen the Republican Party coalesce around Trump uh, as uh, uh, times have changed, I think we've seen most lawyers on the conservative side coalesce around Scalia's approach to textualism and originalism, in part because uh, Scalia was one of the early leaders of the Federalist Society, a, a, cons a group of conservative and libertarian lawyers, judges, and law students. And uh, Scalia presented the idea that not only are other means of interpretation incorrect, but they are illegitimate. And uh, it has served, uh, the, the, the tools of originalism and textualism have served as a basis for delegitimizing the more liberal decisions that the Supreme Court has come out with on things like um, same-sex marriage or in the uh, Obamacare case uh, that we've mentioned. And so I think it's very likely that most of the judges and justices coming up through the federal society and then joining the bench are uh, embracing, are likely to embrace Scalia's views of how to interpret the Constitution, how to interpret statutes. One great example of that is Neil Gorsuch, the newest Supreme Court justice, who I think has been quite um, uh, uh, a... Uh, uh, an acolyte of Scalia, someone who is uh, parroting his lines. Uh, in one of uh, Gorsuch's first opinions, uh, he wrote something like, uh, well, if there's a problem with how Congress has drafted the statute, there's a solution for that. It's called legislation. Or at the argument in the partisan gerrymandering case out of Wisconsin, which we're still waiting to, uh, to uh, hear how the court's going to decide it, uh, um, at one point, Gorsuch says an oral argument, can we get back to this arcane matter, the Constitution, uh, as though only he is focused on what the Constitution provides and the other justices are doing something else? And so I think that there's no question that uh, Justice Scalia's approach, at least in the short to medium term, is going to be emulated by other conservative judges 
and justices on the Supreme Court and is likely to have uh, a lot of influence. Scalia may have more influence in his death uh, than he did in his life. He wasn't a justice who wrote a lot of majority opinions in key cases. He wasn't uh, the justice who was the swing justice, who the one who was moving five, four majorities one way or the other. He was a solid conservative. But his ideas and his writing were so influential that uh, they really seem to have some staying power right now. Yeah, the, the book uh, title again is The Justice of Contradictions, Antonin Scalia and the Politics of Disruption, published this year by Yale University Press. Rick Hasen, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking to you.